Let's pray before we uh, turn to God's word again. Father, we thank you. Uh, We praise you for your greatness. Uh, We've sung of it in part, but we we can't in truth wrap our our minds around the fullness of your greatness. But Lord, we ask that as we turn to your word and as we reflect on that this evening, that you might uh, open up our our eyes and our hearts to see you in your glory and for our lives, Lord, to be lived out of the knowledge and the love and the praise of you in your glory. So we ask that uh, you might speak through me and, and speak to us this evening, that you might shape us and mould us for your purposes and for the praise of your glory. Amen. If you keep uh, that passage there from Colossians open in front of you, um, however you're looking at that, you'll find that uh, helpful. Um, I've ended this morning by sharing with you a short quote from Ivan Illich, responding to the question, how do you best change a society? Is it violent revolution or is it a gradual reform? He says, neither. If you want to change a society, and you must tell an alternative story. And we thought that actually you might refine that a little better and say, actually, you must tell a better story. And so this morning, we looked at one aspect of that, the better story that the gospel offers. And the first thing that it offers is that God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. And so the second of, of four of these values, and if you want to follow the, the rest, because I've only given you 50% of it. Um, I've stolen the titles from Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, and you can see some of the stuff in there. We find them at Grace Church very helpful for us. We've adapted uh, some of that to use for our sort of personal uh, discipleship with one another to uh, shape one another's hearts. But what we'll think about this evening is God is great, so I don't have to be in control I don't know if you can remember back, it feels a long time ago already, doesn't it, actually, to the snow a few weeks ago, and um, I actually managed to have a, a minor sort of bump in my car. Uh, I'd gone out on, on one of the sort of first days of the snow, it wasn't so bad then. I thought, well, you know, I've, I've come up from, from Wales, I'm not really used to the snow, um, I'm going to have to get used to it at some point, so I'm going to give this a crack, and it was all going so, so well until it wasn't. Uh, and the frustrating thing was the accident happened coming to a roundabout and I could see my house uh, from the roundabout. I was like, oh, what now of all times. And this is the thing with control in my life. I think that I'm doing a great job right until the moment I'm not. And so I get to the roundabout and I go to put on my brakes and the brakes just don't work. And so I just slowly sort of skid into the back of this other car and it's one of those moments where everything sort of goes in slow motion and you hope and you pray it won't happen but you know it will and you just sort of wait for the inevitable and if you would have looked at that you would have thought as the person I bumped into uh, would have thought that I was completely in control you would have seen my hand at the wheel you wouldn't have seen me slide to the side I went perfectly straight I would have looked like I was in control right until it was clear I wasn't. And how many of you know that in your life also? It looks like you're in control and you feel as though you're in control right until you're not. Or you think that you're doing a good job of being in control until you realise that you're not. 
Well, the good news is that God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Turn with me there to these first uh, five or six verses there from 15 to 20. And the thing we see here is Christ supreme and Christ sufficient. And we see that in a number of ways here. Firstly, that Christ is supreme in creation in verses 15 to 17 here. And the first way in which we see this is he's the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. The same God that has said in no uncertain terms that he cannot uh, be made into a form or to an image. In Deuteronomy 4, we get this extended discussion on this. God will say, look, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And clear instructions not to put any form upon God the Father. Why is that? Well, one element is about, of course, being distinct. Every other God is pictured in a form, and God is not. He's distinct. But, of course, there's something much deeper than that. Why God would ask not to be put in a form is he's not to be limited by a form. Actually, God is so great that to try to uh, conceive of him in something that you can see and you can touch and you can wrap your mind around is to not do justice to the God who made all matter. Now, God is not to be pictured. And yet, Jesus here is the image of the invisible God. What was previously left to be invisible is now visible in Jesus. Anselm gives, uh, on the one hand, a fantastic, and the other hand, a greatly disappointing sort of uh, description of God as being that which no greater than can be conceived of. And there's a truth to that. And that's why God or the Father can't be imaged to this point. But of course, it's quite dissatisfying. It doesn't tell us all that much, really, about who God is and what he's like. It tells us something, that he's so great that whatever your greatest thought is, he's better than that. But it doesn't tell us too much about who he is. But now, here, that God who is so great, who couldn't be contained within an image and do justice to him, now can be pictured in Jesus. That is how supreme Jesus is. That he's the firstborn of all creation, verse 15 tells us, standing to inherit all things as the heir of the Father. He's the image of God. But secondly, we see his supremacy in creation in that he is a creator God tells us here, verse 16, by him, all things were created. And then we have a sort of parenthesis, brackets here before Paul comes back to his point. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now he comes back to his point again. All things were created through him and for him. By him, all things are created. Through him, all things are created. And for him, all things are created. Both those that we see, the visible and the invisible. Both things on the earth and those in heaven. Both those that are physical and those that are spiritual. Nothing is above him. Nothing 
is beyond him. Nothing is without his stamp of creation. He's the agent of creation. That is, he has created himself all things. But he's secondly the source of all creation. All things were made through him. And thirdly, he's the goal of creation. All things were made for him, for his glory. He's the image of God. He's the creator God, but he's also the sustainer God. Verse 17, look at that with me. He is before, or that is ahead of all things, above and ahead of all things, so that they all ultimately look to him as their sustainer. In him, all things hold together. Or that is, all things are are composed or stand together. He composes the great symphony that is creation. The refrain of which is constantly to give God glory. We're told in Romans chapter 1 that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The greatness and supremacy of God is known throughout creation. And the image we're given of it here is that all things are composed and held together by him. I don't know whether you've ever um, seen the program Classic Albums, Another one of my sort of uh, little guilty pleasures to sort of uh, relax at times. And uh, they take you behind the story of, of the making of a, a great album. And one of the most fascinating things to me is you see the sort of producers behind the, uh, the massive sort of sound boards. And they have all these dials and buttons everywhere. And you see the great kind of skill and composition that happens is they bring things in as they uh, get just the right level of things they bring things in at the right moment and they know just what is needed in every little moment to make the most of the song that the band creates and here is that sort of image of Jesus here that he's great he's this great composer of the universe he's created it and sustained it and holding it together balancing it out keeping it in order Now, if that's true, and you might have sort of thought as we come to this kind of a passage and to this point so far, they say, well, how do we get to a place of saying, well, God is great, so I don't have to be in control? How do we get to actually thinking about our daily life here? Well, if all of this is true that we've just said, you know, he's more than capable of looking after your life. In fact, is he not much, much more capable of doing a better job than you or I? Christ is supreme in creation. But he's also seen as sufficient in salvation. And we see that here in verses 18 to 20. And we'll see that uh, verses 18 will pair with 15 and 15 with 19 and 20 with 16 here in what Paul's doing. Firstly, Christ is seen as sufficient over his church. Look at verse 18 there with me. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the heir of all things in creation. We learn that in verse 15. And now here in verse 18, we read that he's the head of the body, the church. He's over his people, the new creation. 
And we read that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. Verse 19 here. The image of the invisible God. But more than that, all the fullness of God pleased to dwell in him. He's of the same standing and substance as the Father. And then we see something of the purposes of Christ here. And one of them here is that the reconciliation of all things. Look at verse 20 there with me. That through him to reconcile himself to all things. He restores all things from the brokenness of sin. And there's something interesting there in that verse, isn't it? That he's restoring all, all things to himself. Because of the brokenness of sin, we're at odds with God. And what does God do in response to that? Well, he sends his son through him, through his sacrificial death in our place for our sins, reconciles us to himself. And then look at the cosmic realm of his purposes here. There's a cosmic realm to this reconciliation that's spoken of here in verse 16. He's before all things Oh, sorry, that's verse 17, isn't it? Let me find it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And now look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reconciliation, the redemption, the salvation that Jesus brings goes far beyond just the realm of humankind it's the whole cosmos the whole created order is redeemed and reconciled to him it's being reconciled to himself but he's never really been out of control and then look at this second purpose of christ here this purpose of making peace in verse 20 that he makes peace By the blood of the cross. Sin had set a good creation into chaos. Out of the shalom, out of the order, out of the harmony, the peace, the rhythm in which creation was held. And now through the cross of Christ, the whole cosmos will be restored to that same peace and order and harmony. It was once created in and intended to rest and celebrate in. So what? So what for us? Well, God is great. God is great and you are not. You can't save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. That is, you can't make yourself more like God. You can't do that just by simply carefully controlling and ordering your life around you. You, you won't do that through behavioural management But God does save you through his work. So that the the Christian life isn't about perfection. Your salvation isn't dependent upon your perfect performance, which is good news because you can't and you won't and you don't. But it's dependent upon the perfect righteousness 
of Jesus. God is great and you are not. So it's not about projection. It's not about that sort of fake it until you make it kind of idea. That we all know that really ends in either burning out or blowing up. It's not about keeping up this projection of having all things together before everybody else. God is great, and you are not, so it's not about protection. It's, it's not as though you'll make your way, you'll be able to save yourself, you'll be able to sanctify yourself uh, by simply tightly protecting and ordering your world, shielding yourself from any potential danger or risk or discomfort. No, God is great, and he will lead you through all things. The Christian life isn't supposed to be this constant struggle and strain in your own energy, but a submitting to the work of God within you. God is great, and you are not. He can save you from all sin, from all brokenness, from all emptiness. There's nothing beyond him. He's completely all-sufficient in his salvation. And God is great, although you're not. He has a whole universe in his hands, and he always has done. So, he can hold your life together too. He's all-supreme. And now because of all this truth, let me give you here just three simple points from the next sort of few verses there. Firstly, because God is great, he overcomes your alienation. Look with me there to verse 21 to 23 here. And in verse 21 we're told here, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil things, is now brought near and reconciled you who were once alienated that is excluded cut off the image is you know of of the child who's sent out of the classroom at school the one who's excluded you who were hostile in mind and the word there means you know the one who is resolved to do harm um perhaps you'll know this truth also i I have three boys um, and many times I can pinpoint the moment at which something will flare up. There's that moment that you can see the look in the eyes and you know what's coming next. And you try to throw yourself in there to break it up before it happens. This is what it's talking of, hostile in mind, that, that moment where behind the eyes you see the anger, you see the move to hit out. Alienated, hostile in mind, Doing evil, and the word is literally doing pain-ridden things. A sort of self-destruction. Doing things out of pain that cause pain. Three images of what we look like before Christ's gracious redemption and reconciliation of us. He has now reconciled you. In his body of flesh, by his death, verse 22. He's now reconciled and repaired your relationship to God. 
And now we've had three negative images of what we're like before knowing Christ, that we're alienated, we're cut off, we're excluded, we're hostile in mind, that is, we're resolved to do, uh, to do harm. And thirdly, doing evil, doing pain-ridden things. Now we get three uh, good characteristics here, and this is the purpose of that reconciliation. This is what it does for us here, verse 22, that he might present you holy, set apart for God, that he might present you blameless, spotless and above reproach and there's three images there perhaps to try to put them in more everyday language of the best china mint condition and being not guilty it's like the best china being holy that is set apart for noble use set apart for good use that might be like whether i don't know whether you're Perhaps your mum or perhaps your grandmother had a best set of china. You know, the ones that you look at and that are perhaps kept in a, in a nice cupboard on display, but never really come out. You know, they only really come out if someone really special is over. That's for best. It's set apart for good use. You're holy, set apart for good use. But second, it's spotless. It's like mint condition. If you ever um, find yourself on eBay, you'll know that this is a sort of term that uh, uh, people play very fast and, and loose with this, don't they? The reality is mint condition is supposed to be, this is sort of perfect condition. This, this looks like it's barely been touched. This is sort of collector's uh, standard. You're spotless. You're in mint condition. And thirdly, you're not guilty. The word literally here is um, you're not convictable. That were this to go through court, there's no way that you could go down in the trial. You're not convictable. You're not guilty. You're innocent. And then we get one simple condition here, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, Receive all these things if you indeed continue in the faith. That is, persist. Persist. Stable. It, it's, the, the, the language is a building word. It like, talks about the laying of a foundation. You're stable. You're steadfast. You're unmoving. Again, another building word. It's a foundation that's rooted in the ground and it's not going anywhere. But so how do I Persist. If I can be all of those things and I can be rid of all of those negative things, if I can be rid of my alienation, rid of my hostile mind, rid of my evil ways and become holy, become blameless, become above reproach, if I continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, well, how do I do that? And Paul gives us here the fuel. Look at verse 23 here. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Constantly gospeling your heart keeps you rooted. It helps you persevere. The hope is not a constant straining and struggle of doing better, being more, pulling your socks up and working that bit harder. It's of not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's of constantly reminding 
your heart of the good news, the better story that it is to follow Christ. God is great and you're not. And as far away as you were, or as far away as you may still be, perhaps, and as bad as your sin may be, you can't outdo his amazing grace toward you. Because he's great, he overcomes your alienation. Secondly, because he's great, you can rejoice in your sufferings. Look with me there to verses 24 to 26. Paul tells us here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why for their sake? What is it that he feels this is doing for them? That he's on the one hand suffering and yet rejoicing in his suffering. Is he not showing them that God is greater? We don't follow Jesus in order to secure things, health, finances, success, or security. Yet when we lose these things, we sometimes can feel as though life is out of control because we don't have them. And sometimes, if truth be told, we can feel like when we do have those things, life is in control. Yet in both cases, God is great and he is in control. When we rejoice during suffering, which in whatever form it may take, is it not us losing one of those things that we might be tempted to see as great, tempted to see as we need in order to know fullness of life? Do you see that difference? That that's, that's the difference between none of those things are bad things, they're good things. But actually, ultimately, they're not needed in order to know fullness of life. When we rejoice during suffering, when we lose some of those things, we show that Jesus is more valuable than those things. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, as John Piper famously says. So he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. And he tells us something more here in verse 24. He says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a challenging verse, isn't it? What might possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's certainly not that in some way he'd not suffered enough. He certainly had. It's not that there's somehow something lacking within Jesus. That's certainly not the case. And Paul has set that out already in these verses, isn't he? He's all sufficient. He's all supreme. So what is lacking? Well, surely it's simply this, isn't it? That Jesus is not in front of us. Isn't that so often the problem? He is not in front of us for us to see, at least. He is before us and with us through the Holy Spirit, but we don't see him. We don't see him there suffering and yet rejoicing. We don't see Jesus, the one who is all supreme, all sufficient, created all things through himself and for himself, by himself. Yet trusting God his Father, trusting him, becoming obedient, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. It tells us in Hebrews that he went to the cross for the joy 
set before him. Yet we don't see that in front of us. And so there's this wonderful ministry that occurs for us here and now, for one another and for the world in which we live, is that in some small way, by faithfully suffering and yet rejoicing and pointing to the surpassing worth of Jesus, apart from the things that we might lose in suffering, that stings to a point, but the surpassing worth of Jesus that we have, despite whatever we may lose, we in some small way mirror Christ. I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm showing you the same kind of faithfulness that Jesus has showed you, but you don't see right in front of you right now. So is your suffering something that makes you question God's greatness? Or something which maybe leads you to wonder whether life is got a bit out of control or are you seeing it as a way to witness that God is greater than anything you may have lost and I'm aware that that's a hard thing to say isn't it and you might think what place do you have to say you don't know what I've lost well we've each of us perhaps lost a great deal but I can promise you that the truth holds that nothing that you've lost could possibly be more valuable than Jesus? Do you see it as something that leads you to question God's greatness, his control? Or do you see it as a way to witness to those around you that Jesus is better, even than good things that you may have lost? And Paul says this is the stewardship from God that was given to him for you. This is his job this is a responsibility to show them this not just to preach to them but to show them this in his life god is great and you're not he has put you where he's put you sometimes we feel as though we're not in control or that god's not in control when we're not where we want to be not where we feel we should be not where we'd like to be isn't the truth and we wouldn't like maybe to say it or to admit it like this but that so often I equate my sense of being in control to God being in control when I feel as though I'm not in control I really feel that God isn't in control either but when you know that God is great and you're not, it leads to contentment. When we know that God is great and is in control, we can be content where we are and where he'll take us. To know that all that is good and all that I need in this moment is not something beyond me that I have to reach after. When I know that God is great and is in control, it leads to patience that I don't need things to happen in my time, but that I can trust him in all his plans and his wisdom. Paul recognises the period of suffering that he's in as one being for their sake, that he might be able to show, hard as it is, that Jesus is better than anything that he's lost, and he's lost a lot. 
But that also this is a stewardship, this is a duty, this is a role, this is a responsibility that God has given him. And that through this, he's making the word of God fully known. Verse 25, that's his stewardship, that's his role, isn't it? To make the word of God fully known. There's this clarity of Paul's call on his life for him, isn't there? That above all else, he's to make the word of God known. And that everything is really a gospel issue for him. He's been given the stewardship to make the word of God fully known. The word of God that he tells us here, verse 26, was a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And it's not hidden as though absent in the Old Testament, of course, but it's that the details of God's salvation have progressively revealed themselves, haven't they? Now they're all here in fullness in Jesus but as the story of God progresses through the Old Testament so the revelation of how God will save his people progressively develops doesn't it it was at once a mystery somewhat hidden and now fully revealed to his saints through Christ God is great and he's in control of our suffering because he's great you can rejoice in your sufferings And lastly, because he is great, he that's within you is greater than the obstacles outside of you. Turn with me there to verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great are his riches of his glory in this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do we see God's greatness displayed? What will he do? Will it be great miracles, great shows of power? Well, he does do that on occasions, of course. But here, no, the primary way in which he displays his greatness is not through great miracles or shows of power, though those would do that also. It's primarily through Christ's presence within you. See, God is great and you are not. The hope for your perseverance, your growth in the faith, is not your ability to control your development. It's not your ability to gain self-discipline or your ability to keep up your Bible reading plan and your prayers. The real hope for your perseverance is God working within you and being present with you. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. There's this constant pattern here for Paul of correction and realignment of the heart. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is their discipleship. And the goal here is your discipleship. So why do we sometimes struggle to let go of that slightly false sense of control in our lives well one reason is that sometimes we have a different end goal to that of God we sometimes know we're not in control and feel God isn't in control because we're not reaching our goal but if we could resolve ourselves to God's goal we might find it easier to accept his control Isn't it sometimes, and I wouldn't want to say it quite so bluntly, but I sort of think that I know better than him what I need. 
And perhaps I stop listening to God and imagine he's not speaking because he's not saying what I want. The goal here is our being presented mature in Christ. But so how? How do we do this? How do we get there? Verse 29 here. For this I toil, that is become weary, expend my energy, spend myself on this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. This is the area upon which Paul gives himself. This is where he spends himself and invests himself, becoming mature in Christ. And how does he do that? Well, on the one hand, there's the toil, the work, the energy that he gives But he struggles, verse 29 here, with all God's energy within him. Whilst there's a call for me to work out my faith, I do that through the power of God working in me. God is great, and I'm not. So it's good news that I'm not in control. Instead, I'm called to trust and submit to the power of God working in my life. What's the problem for the Colossians here? To try to summarise, and in some ways this might be unfair because really isn't this the problem of all the churches to which Paul and uh, the other New Testament authors write in the New Testament here. Isn't the danger that they have just a little gospel? Don Carson has this great pithy quote that he says, a little gospel is a dangerous thing. His point is to say that the gospel in a few areas of your life, but not all of it, is a dangerous thing. Paul's concern is that actually the Colossians, that we, as we read this tonight, might imagine that the gospel is something that speaks to maybe only a few areas of life and not all of life. And yet, actually, what we encounter here is a very, very big gospel that reaches every part and aspect of my life. Because God is great, I don't have to be in control. Because he is great, when I struggle to let go of control when I feel as though I don't quite know how I would get on letting go of trying to tightly and closely order my life and submit myself to the power of God working within me instead, I need to gospel my heart again. I need to come back to this very big message of this very big Christ. That you may be tempted as you first read it this evening to feel that this is somewhat theoretical. Nice theory, nice doctrine, nice theology, great. But where does it affect real life? But it affects all of it, doesn't it? Because all of that leads me to say in my heart, God is great, I don't have to be in control. To realign my heart with the truth. We think that we're in control 
of life until we realize that we're really not in control at all. But God is great and is in control. We think that we're doing good at being in control right up until we realize we're really not doing a good job. But God does. The good news, the hope this evening is to stop and to submit to God, to recognize his greatness, to recognize that we cannot run on our own strength, but that he is all sufficient, he is all supreme, and that we can trust ourselves to allow God to control our lives and to know better how to order our life and to carry us wherever he has put us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so prone to see so many things around us as being great. We are so prone to see ourselves as being great and to imagine that everything depends upon me. I'm so prone to frustration and wandering in my heart when I feel as though I'm not in control and I'm not quite getting what I was wanting. Although I know really deep down that I don't do a good job of being in control of my life, there's part of me that still wants to believe that I might know better what I need. I might know better how to order my life. Father, I thank you for these wonderful words that are not just words, of course, they're truth. They're the truth of this universe and existence, Lord. That you are completely all supreme and sufficient. That all things are made by you and through you and for you. And that you hold all things together. And if that is so, on the grandest of scales and stages of the whole universe, of everything visible and invisible, of those of material and those of the laws of gravity and physics that hold us in place, that stop us from spontaneously combusting, that stop our planet from imploding upon itself by that impossible maths that you've ordered. If that is so of the whole cosmos, then you are more than able to order my life also. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to depend upon you, to rely on you, to submit to you. Lord, we thank you that the message of hope this evening is not for us to try better, to try harder, to put on a better performance, but is to trust in the perfect sacrifice of your son, Jesus, in our place, to cover our sins, to grant us his righteousness and perfection, taking us from being alienated, from being hostile in mind and doing evil things, to being holy, set apart, blameless, not guilty. Thank you that the good news is to trust in all that you have done. 
not simply to try harder. Spirit, I pray that you might impress this upon our hearts. For those of us journeying with you, maybe for many years, to help us, Lord, to stay close to you and to trust in you, to rely upon you and your strength at work within us, not our own ability to order our world, our own ability to self-discipline, but your perfect sufficiency. And Lord, maybe for those who might not have come to that place yet, they might come to that place of ultimate submission and repentance from sin and turning to you in faith and trusting you to be all that we need. So we thank you that the story that the gospel gives us is so much better than the story that the world sells us. And Lord, would you help us to keep that close to our minds and our hearts this week and always. Amen.